Are you unable to concentrate on the tasks at hand? Do you need help focusing more or leveling up your game? Here's a tip. Try Cognizant Citicoline, clinically studied to support mental energy, focus, memory, and attention. Cognizant supports brain health and supplies the brain with the energy it needs to stay sharp. Cognizant is a leading nootropic featured in over 200 products. This podcast is powered by Cognizant. Visit Cognizant.com to learn more and find a product to help you fuel your day. Ready to achieve great heights? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Power Your Performance, the podcast where we dive deep with leaders in the gaming world and beyond and learn the techniques they use to power their lives. I am your host, Gary Kleinman. Power Your Performance. Powered by Cognizant. Welcomes Marcus Esports Howard. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning all the way in Texas. All the way in Texas to Tampa, Florida. Tampa. Tampa. Sunny Tampa. Good old Tampa. I think you're you're part of that heat wave, aren't you, that the, the media is talking about? Yeah, the heat index, I think, last week was like 107, 112, something like that. That's hot. I, I was taking my kids actually twice in the last week. I was trying to take them to the playground. We just had to like stop midway and come back to the house. Like, no, this was enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, 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 you know, that's when you know you're getting older, when you really appreciate <laughs> air conditioning all day. So, uh, you know, speaking about hot, if there's anybody that, that is that is hot in the space of esports gaming, education, consulting, talking, authorship, it's you. Um, and we're going to get to all those in time, but let's go back. You're a lifelong gamer. When did that start? Uh, the earliest memory that I have is when I was six. And I know that I played a handful of games here or there, but when I was six, my parents for Christmas got my twin brother and my younger sister, she's 18 months younger than, than me, got the three of us the Nintendo Entertainment System. And I remember very vividly waking up for Christmas, opening the door to my bedroom, um, starting to walk down the hallway to where the Christmas tree was. And, and I could hear the music, like the, the opening screen music, right? That just kind of plays on loop, the title music, and seeing like the, the colors on the wall being cast from, you know the different characters running across the screen jumping on the turtles and the mushrooms and all of that and the three of us just lit up it was like you know i'll never forget that moment oh cool and what a what a what a great lifetime memory so you came from a gaming supportive household i came from a gaming tolerant household okay um and i've been having some conversations with some of my colleagues here including sebastian uh, you know sebastian that I, my parents appreciated um that it inspired me to learn more about technology. And I think they tolerated it to the extent that it supported my passion for technology. Well, that's interesting because, you know, at a time when that was happening, I don't think many parents looked at it from technology or STEM based. It was mindless gaming uh, anti-social or non-social forget not anti that'd be a little bit too dramatic but non-social activity and just staring there doing nothing and not learning anything so pretty progressive that you're you're so you're were your parents educators uh were they technically they must have had some technical background in order to see that in in terms of gaming 
Uh, no, not so much. Uh, they were college educated, uh, you know, and, and worked in their respective careers. My dad worked um, in sales. He got his degree in business and then ultimately ended up as a 911 operator for dispatch for a 911 in DeKalb County, Central Georgia. My mom worked in sales for AT&T, which became like Bell South or whatever happened when they, they got broken up. The, the Bell South conglomerate got broken up. But my aunt... My aunt played video games and I remember we would go to her house and play Sega. And my parents would just like witness like how much joy it brought to us. Because, you know, back in the day, we didn't have the internet, right? Right. Um, and so games were more about either single player experiences, but more for us, like the couch co-op experience. And it, it's taken some time into my adult years for my sister and my brother and I to have a good relationship. Like we had an okay relationship, but we had like the typical sibling rivalry. Okay. Unless we were playing video games. Okay. So I, I think my parents did it more as like a way to bring the three of us together. And then they understood that we were just fascinated with technology. But I do remember very vividly as well, like two two moments, you know, in playing NES, my parents would say, get off that dang Nintendo, like go outside, get some air in your lungs. So was there a smackdown between you and your siblings in terms of who's winning in the games? It was always competitive. My sister, the way she tells it, she was always better at video games than us. Right. Um, okay. And sometimes that was true, but I, I think that it just helped us all be just naturally competitive against one another. But we would equally play, like, again, like couch co-op games. So, like, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and The Simpsons, like, uh, Streets of Rage, games where you would play, had, you had to work together in order to beat the game. No, it's great. I mean, it's, it's always fascinating to me how families find different ways to bond and how parents with responsibility to get their their kids to um, like each other as much as they can despite their differences um, and that yeah. we all have them uh, as yeah. do our, as do our, you know our siblings and our children and, and what have you and and certainly video games is is one significant way to do it. and it's probably more common now because video games are a tad bit more acceptable today um, than they were, you know, 20 years ago or 25, 30 years ago. So it's interesting that your parents allowed that and fostered that. So... Uh, you, and, and to be clear, you know, they, they allowed it to the extent that it was a motivation for me to do my homework. Yeah. Right. So like as soon as I, I you know, wasn't doing homework or, or was being a troublemaker in class, that was the first thing that took away. Yeah. yeah was video games. Immediately. Yeah, so I, I can relate. I, yeah. yeah. My kids have, um, I don't know, three Xboxes buried someplace that I forgot where I buried them. And every new holiday, I had to go buy another one because I forgot where I put the last one. So, um, yeah. and, and they still laugh at me now, which is funny in their life because I see them doing with their kids. So, and and then, okay, so you, you obviously stayed with video games um, and technology, right? <laughs> I mean, is that really where that, that passion came from and so tell me what you did next i mean you go to high school and then you go to college yeah so in high school my brother and i uh, so ironically my parents were trying to get us to learn the code in the ninth grade we, we got uh, selected for a magnet accelerator so science and technology and my parents were trying to get us to learn how to code for the sake of like writing code within the science program but we didn't have interest in doing that we just we didn't have any interest in coding um, they, they gave us basically like this 600 page book of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, but we just didn't want to learn it. They were making us make time out of our eating schedule that we wanted to spend playing video games to go learn this thing and it never would stick. But 
we learned through the magnet program because we had to have TI-83 plus graphing calculators, the ones with the screens, that you could put video games on the calculators and turn the calculator basically into a Game Boy. Yep. So we, because we had a lifelong love of playing video games, naturally, like we wanted to see if we could make our own game. And so we started learning to code explicitly and specifically for the purpose of building our own game on the calculator. So where our parents were trying to introduce coding to us, to no avail, like once we made that intrinsic alignment with video games, we naturally started to teach ourselves. And then I went on to get uh, an IT degree with a minor in management. My brother got a computer science degree, all because of video games. Well, that's what's fascinating. I, I, I think, you know, people don't give gaming enough credit. Um, I know there, there's a statistic. Um, I looked at it and I always forget what it is, but a certain amount of city managers in the United States say that they're city managers because they grew up playing SimCity, right? Mm-hmm. Which is pretty impressive, right? I mean, so when when that kind of skill set becomes enjoyable and gets ingrained in who you are and you can take that and build a career and touch other people's lives by doing that, pretty impressive. I mean, it's it, and it's also something you don't hear about very often. Like the story you're telling us that in your history, that building it off a calculator is what got you to work. You don't hear that. And and those are powerful stories that should be told, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's a value proposition that there isn't anybody uh, that doesn't want to uh, support that and extend it. So so you, you start doing that. And when was your first professional thought that you said, hey, I think I can probably do something forever as a career in, in, in gaming technology and, and its extensions? It, ironically, it wasn't until after I graduated from college, right? So like 22, 23, um, and, and it happened almost by accident. My brother and I, after he graduated, was like, all right, well, now we have technology degrees. We know how to write code. We built a number of applications. Let's try making another game. So we started designing this game, building this game, built a game design document, did like concept art. We had mock-ups for like gameplay mechanics and all the features. And so we started doing market research as, as any, uh, you know, gaming studio worth, worth their salt should want to do in order to understand like what's the market potential for the genre and the experience you're creating. And we learned that there are over 1.3 million games in the industry, or at the time over 1 million games. It's grown since then, um, um, you know, over the course of the 10 years we've now been in the space and that 75 percent of them are made by independent game developers which just like indie music indie film small teams more creative smaller budgets and that unfortunately in 2013 or in 20 yeah 2013 the year we started this this solution um the average game developer which is the average indie game developer made less than 500 dollars of revenue per year, which is not enough to sustain a single person, let alone a team. It's just, it was certainly not in America. I'm not even so sure in in India where some of the the development is done, but uh, without a doubt, developing countries, let me not say third world country. Yeah. 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 Without, without a doubt. Um, But the tools have um, expanded. So it's easier today for indie developers uh, because of, all the, 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 the software tools. Um, all right, so 10 years ago, you realize you're doing this. Uh, what was the first thing you did? And you go, okay, this is, 
where I'm going to spend my professional life. Um, and I know it's got lots of arms, and we're going to get to all those octopus arms that you have because they're fascinating. And, you know, we've had a, a couple conversations where we share a lot of beliefs, and we're going to get into those about the direction, the value proposition, and what's really going on in esports but we'll we'll still go back eight to ten years and and give some context and foundation for how you got to where you are now excellent excellent so we, we started to we recognize there's this problem and while you do hear of like minecraft started indie obviously it's a household name rocket league indie started indie household name league of legends technically indie now a household name uh, more often than not, most games down the vine, you know, think of it as a proverbial elephant graveyard. The, the actual term in the ecosystem for what was happening was indie-pocalypse, like indie and apocalypse, right? Right. So we knew that we didn't have a budget for marketing. And if we didn't, ideally or inevitably, if we didn't find like a scalable solution to grow an audience for the solution, the gameplay experience we were creating, you know, there was a very low chance of success for us. Again, Minecraft being an exception to the rule. So we digitized word of mouth marketing in Project MQ, our solution, a multimedia search engine for amazing games. Like because we had spent our entire lives basically playing video games, we could intuit what was novel and fun and what was quality versus what was derivative or just poor quality and leverage our scouting ability to identify games with how we discover games to build this solution we could deploy at scale. And we managed to scale it to users in 40 countries. That's fantastic. The solution. And, and, and so the first thing we ended up doing was software development, building a solution, community management, because it was just the two of us. So we had to split the bill down the middle. Malcolm had a computer science degree. While I can write functional code, I'm competent in writing code. He is traditionally trained in writing code. Also, like I am a better community manager, networker, uh, writer than he is. So it just made sense for like, he to prior for him to prioritize writing code and me to prioritize building the community. So I, I built a community of 30,000 plus indie game studios and indie game fans over that seven year period. While he built the platform, we missed several launches. You know, again, we were bootstrapping with the money from our day jobs. And so to answer your question, software development, um, community engagement, uh, growth hacking, and ultimately consulting, we would take what we learned in that process of building that community and share that advice to indie studios so they could go and build their own communities. As you were doing that, did you start forming your impression of what you thought the ecosystem was should be in the direction that it was going in terms of gaming? And that was probably just before the boom of esports. Uh, so. You're in the trenches as esports is going, hey, wait a second, there's something here. What did you see then that you thought was going to happen versus what actually is going on now? Another great question. So, I, quite candidly, I didn't even know about like esports proper until 2017. So, we started our business, we started building our game in 2011. It started, we had to pivot into Project in Q 2013. And so I would hear the words as, as, you know, you get more immersed into the ecosystem and sign up for all your IGN news feeds and all these other platforms kind of stay abreast of what's happening, start to see esports um, and even kind of leveraging that news zoo was putting out reports and covering esports as well. Um, but it wasn't a priority for me because we came up in the gaming industry, which is separate from the esports industry. Right. Right. Like I never played competitively. Like Sebastian came up in the esports industry. He started competitively. He played 
Madden and and Dead or Alive. Like he started in that space and grew into the gaming industry. I took the the other uh, the reverse growth path, starting in gaming industry and growing into esports. So actually, so how this happens is so we we built this global platform. We are now recognizing from looking at our stats that like because we have. Uh, you know, we started from Twitter and grew that into our platform. Most of our audience was international. We had a very shallow domestic presence, especially in our, our cities. At the time, I lived, in, I lived in Tampa. My brother lived in, in Savannah. <clears throat> no interaction, no engagement with the local community. So we said, let's start doing activations in person. We started what we call like indie game arcades, where we would curate these games out of our, our scouting ability and, and our networking and then create these in-person experiences where we would help remove the stigma for parents that games are only violent first-person shooters or like Mortal Kombat. Right. Those exist and they have their place, but we were just trying to introduce both students and teachers and parents about all the different types of games. So we started building these activations um, and in that process got invited to do one of these arcades at DreamHack Atlanta yep. the first year that DreamHack came to Atlanta, 2017. So I got to experience esports in person for the first time, and you've seen it, right? It, like the experience <laughs> it's mind boggling, right? It's mine for the, for those that that have never experienced a live esports event. It will change your mind about um, engagement more so than anything. Forget the games for a second, because as I, as we've talked, you know, games are transient, and you see it all the time, but community is not transient um, and engagement is is just unbelievable you close your eyes um, in an arena you think you're in an NBA game right? Right. I mean um, and it's the same um, and it's a different demographic in terms of you got moms and dads and kids and merch and 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 screaming and yelling and the food and everything else it, it's hard to imagine until you see it that you become a believer mm-hmm. So you must have been shocked, right? You go to DreamHack in Atlanta and, and, and you're thinking, okay, we, we want to do some neighborhood stuff and boom, you know, you, 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 know, you hit the 4th of July, basically. Yeah, and what's interesting is we, we did that um, indie game arcade. We had, I don't know, 15 games or so. Um, only one of those games had an eSports on their radar. They'd actually built their game for eSports. The other 14 games had no interest or no understanding of eSports. So that, that helps you understand, like, even then, like the disconnect between gaming and eSports where, and you'll, you'll see this actually, if you go and look at all like the annual industry-wide reports, most of them don't even reference the word eSports in their report. It's a global industry report or a nationwide report. So either the International Game Developers Association or the ESA, the Electronic Software, Entertainment Software Association. Right. You may be lucky if you see one reference to the word esports, but they don't do any research around it because that's how far disconnected esports is from gaming. Yep. So that, that was one of the first uh, kind of gotcha moments for me is like, as I, I see esports and now recognize that we have to be in this space, doing my research with reports that I'm used to consuming and, and analyzing, not seeing those same references there. And, and now, is the reverse not true? You, you see the reference, and eSports as, as, a, as a phrase mm-hmm. seems now to encompass gaming when it, it, they're, they're, it's totally different, right? I mean, there's, it, it, eSports is really just a small sliver of gaming, but it, it, the coin's been flipped. 
and most people think that gaming is just part of what esports is and that the monster is esports, which is kind of interesting because it's just not true. I mean, and, and, and where and why did that coin flip when the industry became an esports industry as opposed to a gaming industry? I would say right around that that 2017 moment, right? When you start to have DreamHack come over here to the US and they are focused on esports, right? It's it's gaming culture more generally, but a, a heavy focus on esports. Um, you start to see these teams start to spin up. And again, like FaZe Clan has been around for 10 years, and but they weren't really like competitive teams more so than content creators to begin with. Um, and, and I can't give you the start date for each of the teams over the last 10 years, but again, that's when I started to see them pop up more and more. And, and granted, I was spending more time doing research on the esports media outlets, so I was just seeing more of them. But to your point, I think that interesting is is maybe being generous. I think that it was it's downright deceptive for esports organizations to misrepresent the opportunity in esports. And I'm going to preface that statement after the fact with, I believe that esports is here to stay. I think that it's going to fundamentally change sports as we know it, education as we know it, and brand engagement as we know it, both from an employee company culture perspective internally and externally from a sales marketing perspective. Well, that's a, that's a very interesting uh, point you raise, is that esports can be used for corporate culture, employee retention, important concepts, obviously, Mm -hmm. different than uh, entertainment, casual, competitive, fun, gaming that people do socially like they now play pickleball, which is everywhere and then some, right? Um, At at, at the anger of all the tennis players who are losing their courts. But, um, Mm -hmm. but, but, But kind of that friction between how it's used corporately um, where the money side is and where the entertainment social value is, if you if you will, in just community engagement, kids playing or people playing with friends, family and, and, and what have you. So, I mean, it's an interesting distinction that you bring up. So when you look at esports and, and you're very vocal in the entire um, uh, atmosphere of esports, and we're going to go through a whole lot of your opinions because um, they're they're fascinating, well thought out, and researched. Where's the rub? I mean, is is esports better in the corporate retention, build customer relationship as opposed to the competitive esports as a sports league like stick and ball is? I think the disconnect is that esports is over indexing on sports and not indexing enough on gaming. So when you think about sports, sports is selective, almost elitist, right? It's, it's high performance, these, these top tier athletes and not a knock against athletes, right? But if you think about it, they, they represent like the most, uh, the best players, the best individuals, people, at their specific skill set. So them being the best makes everyone else who can't compete at that level basically naturally excluded. So you have, let's take an NBA team, you've got maybe 12 people on one team, 24 across you know the two teams competing, 
playing on the court or at least on the court and on the bench and everyone else in the stadium is a spectator. So right. only 10 to 20 people are active, including the coach, actively participating in this stadium that maybe had 50,000, 40,000 people, 40, 50,000 people, and everyone else is just a, a casual, passive spectator. Versus in the gaming industry, you have 3 billion people who are actively participating in an activity. Well, see, and that raises a very interesting point because – uh, using basketball as as the example, and 99.9% of the involvement in basketball is fandom, mm-hmm. right? Spectator fandom, buying merch, screaming and yelling for their team, whatever, whatever that is, with very little engagement in terms of physical engagement on their own. Where gaming is the flip side of that, but there's very little fandom per se in terms of uh, the, the individual gamers, Right. It it so in the NBA you've got people that love LeBron, just from the top of the food chain. You don't really see that in in gaming, which is kind of interesting. You've got so many people. Where's that disconnect? I mean, is it? It 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 it, it seems to me that you have so many people that are gaming that take a small percentage is still a lot a large amount of people that would be fans of a specific player or team as opposed to the game where the NBA has it, the flip. And, and I wonder if, is, is that a, um, a social thing? Is that just that it's so new we haven't gotten there yet? <laughs> I think that most gamers don't care about esports. Uh, and it, that might just be one person's perspective, but if you go back to E3 2020, I think it was E3 2020, there was a segment that was done um, that had Nate Shot interviewed by, what's his name? Uh, Her, Herks, I, I, I don't follow sports really at all. And also I don't really follow esports as a fan. I follow it as an ecosystem. So, these two folks, like the, the guy was from Optic, which is now Envy and Optic or something. Uh, and this guy who's CEO, Nate Shot, CEO of 100 Thieves, were having an interview. And that segment got added into the lineup for E3 when they did the virtual event in 2020. And it's very telling when you watch the comments for that segment. Everybody who was there for the game is like, who the hell are these people? And when are they going to go away? Like, People kept saying, like, we don't care. This is boring. Who are these? This is stupid. Like, let's move back onto the games. And that's the average gamer who signed into this event about video games. They're wondering, like, what is esports doing here? And when can we get rid of it so we can go back to games? Well, and and so, do you, so do you think that and, – and you said earlier you think, you know, esports is here to stay. Is it here to stay as a viable business or is it here to stay – as a higher level of competition in gaming for those that um, have the skill set, number one, um, and two, have the desire and ability and the scale to get out there? I think it can exist where it adds meaningful value to a business. So let me provide an example. If you have a globally distributed team, um, a software development team, maybe you have a physical headquarters here in Tampa Bay and you can't engage your remote team uh, effectively other than video games. Video games is a great way to build camaraderie, teamwork, um, trust, things of that nature. 
to help foster a better company culture to ultimately achieve producing better products and services. So as an HR function, right, esports, and I, I describe it as casually competitive mm-hmm. esports. So not like who's the best player in your team or, or in your, your company across the entire world, but like how do you leverage esports the same way you would normally leverage video games, but in a slightly competitive uh, capacity, how do you leverage that as an HR function? And then esports within that view adds value to the business. Right? But, but not in the same um, mindset, if you will, as stick and ball does in an organized competitive fashion. Is is that how you, how you see it? That um, I don't take Valorant or any other game. Uh, that it doesn't really have legs as an independent franchise competitive worldwide competition that the value is really in using it for for better phrase social good whether it's business social good community social good that's why you've got you know uh place like you know games for change and and, and what have you uh great people doing great things and and is that where you think the value proposition is in the esports I think so, again, to align with a business's or not a business, but a brand's goal, their their core goal, aligning esports as a tool or a means to achieve that goal. So, again, we use the HR example, using it as a sales and marketing um, example for, you know, if you, if you had some product that you would give away free samples for, right, you're already giving away free samples or offering discounts, like 15, 20 percent discounts. Um, instead of just giving them away, or in addition to just giving them away, there is no reason that you could not host an esports tournament where the winner of the tournament gets the product for free from some short or extended period of time. And all the participants get the same discount code that you were going to give to them anyway. Right. But now they feel like they've earned it. And because they have, because they, they engage and, and now you're leveraging the joy of video games to build relationships with those individuals instead of them just either seeing your ad in the newspaper, watching it on TV, seeing it as a sponsored post, or even if they are part of your community, just seeing it in their their scrolling feed on name your platform, social media platform of choice. Those are, are passive marketing versus like relationship building. Right. And I believe that video games and, and casually competitive esports, which is not tier one, top 0.1%, uh, has the most opportunity. And I also believe that if you build a casually competitive esports ecosystem where it's mostly for socializing, but it is competitive, it will eventually support that top tier level of gameplay. But if you only focus at the top tier level of gameplay, you can never activate the full potential because you have to think more grassroots. And that's right. you got to grow up as opposed to esports right now. Bottom up as opposed to top down. Well, yeah, exactly. I, f- I found interesting that I think it was two weeks ago. Uh, the the Call of Duty franchise fees um, have not been paid by most of the franchisees. That there's thirty five, forty five million dollars outstanding. Um, if it's outstanding now, it's it, it's an uncollectible. They're not mm-hmm. going to write a check. Um, and, and it has to go to the core proposition that esports in its current business formation and format cannot be a successful standalone business, which is, I think, why you see, um, and, and your opinion is, is important, that the face clams, the teen liquids, um, they're, they're, they're entertainment 
organizations uh, now, um, <laughs> which, which, which I find humorous just because they're saying, you know, we're content creators. We're not a sports team. And, and that may well be. Um, is that because as a business model, esports the way it is currently configured is not sustainable? There are so many layers to this. I think the, the immediate issue is that you have a bunch of, I'm 36, so I, I say this uh, with all due respect, a bunch of kids, and, and they may now be in their 30s, but you have, a, a, let's say, people who their only qualification for them being leaders in their organizations is that they were doing like smoke rings and trick shot videos 10 years ago, and their organization happened to to take off and now they're in leadership roles. They don't have the business education right. or the life experience to lead organizations of the valuation that they currently have, which is why I believe that you don't see the sustainable revenue because they, they, they're still thinking from the, I'm the most popular kid in class perspective versus like, I'm the kid who's gonna graduate to use a school metaphor. Right. Well, but if you look at again, and and all too frequently, and maybe it's it's right to compare the business model of esports to the business models of stick and ball sports, right? And mm-hmm. and the bulk of stick and ball sports business model are media rights, right? I mean, whether mm-hmm. it's sponsorships on the stadium, whether it's in stadium or in venue, um, ad placement and buys, and streaming and cable and and television, you strip that away. There's not a football team, baseball team, hockey team that has any degree of sustainability. Uh, and esports will probably never get there, I don't believe, because it's it's essentially a computer digital distribution, which is limiting, right? So uh, you're not going to see Valorant from 8 to 11 o'clock on a Thursday night. You're not going to have Monday night Valorant on Amazon from 8 to 11. So where does eSport then go? Because it's not inexpensive to pay the athletes to travel, to train, uh, nutrition, which is you know certainly what Skins is all about. Mm-hmm. Where's that money come from? And is it viable? What I would expect to see, and I think we're starting to see it now, is that esports teams will evolve into agencies and help non-endemic brands. The smart ones will do it early, and we're seeing that with Misfits Gaming. Um, will help endemic and non and ultimately the biggest opportunities in non-endemic brands build their own internal gaming and esports divisions. Again, I believe that 20 years ago, and you've probably seen this 20 years ago, like only a handful of, of Fortune 500 companies were in social media. Mm-hmm. And those who were in social media were doing it through agencies because they didn't understand and appreciate and know how to leverage it for their business. So they had to go to an external resource, subject matter expert, in order to do that. Um, over time, the technology has become more accessible and the understanding has become more accessible. And now most brands and businesses leverage social media. I see that exact kind of journey happening with esports right now with esports, tier one esports orgs being those those niche boutique uh, agencies. And as eSports goes on that same journey over the next 20 years, they're inevitably not gonna continue to lead the market because why would you pay $5 million to Team Liquid to be a sponsor, have your logo on a jersey when you could spin up your own internal eSports organization for 
a quarter million dollars and generate more business value, dollars, business value for a quarter million dollars than that $5 million you spent to sponsor that team. And 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 what do you think the future of that is with Web3 and Metaverse? <laughs> I see them right now in the short term as colliding hype trains. If you'll notice, I would say all from my research and, and maybe I'm missing some, but to my understanding, all the tier one esports orgs have at least one crypto sponsor. If it's not now their major sponsor, because most endemic and non-endemic brands have learned that you don't get your return on investment for sponsoring esports teams. The, the, the exception are the crypto companies because as a, a business, they've only existed generously 10 years, more realistically the last two or three, that NFTs have become popular and the metaverse has become popular. So I, there's not enough long-term business value in their own business models to even be putting the money into esports work, but they also don't have the understanding that the other brands have learned about like whether you can or can't, and typically you can't get your money back out of spending. So as we're seeing in crypto winter, I would anticipate that deals are going to get lower if not go away. Uh, especially if you've put in tens of millions of dollars and you're not getting that conversion because gamers don't want anything to do with NFTs. That's right. a broad statement. But yeah, well, I, I think consumers also, I mean, uh, the NFT conferences in New York the, the, this week and, and everything, and I know a fair amount of people there, it's one place I did not want to be this week, um, mm-hmm. is that the, you know, the NFT market is, is basically bottling out faster than the downhill on, the, on, on, on a roller coaster. Um, mm-hmm. But is that the same thing with the metaverse and Web3? Are they just the fear of missing out? It's the next thing. We got to create something. So let's call it something and it will be the extension of gaming in the intersection of reality and virtual. I, I can appreciate having lived through kind of the launch of the commercial or publicly accessible or residential internet, the potential that the metaverse will have, the inevitable t- potential of the metaverse and blockchain will have just as, again, as the internet and social media have transformed the way we do business and, and our, our personal lives over the last 20 years. Like we're literally only having this conversation now because the internet exists. Right. Right. And you're broadcasting some point in the future because social media exists. So I I see that happening where the metaverse becomes like the evolved version of the Internet, where there are storefronts and e-commerce and all that. Will we be at a kind of ready player one surrogate space where you're going to be, you know, spending the majority of your time there at the exclusion of the rest of your life? I don't think so. But I do believe it will have a similar scale of impact. I'm just not quite sure how that's going to manifest. I think it's more from an augmented reality place than it is. The yeah, matrix. I mean, I, I look at it. It becomes the matrix. Yeah, I mean, I look at it as a potentially just another form of community and engagement mm-hmm. and not a form of business. Right. right? And, and I think what, what seems to happen, certainly in our country, is that whenever anything comes up, the first thing is, how do we monetize it? Where, where's the business in that? Um, and, and I'm not so sure that the metaverse or Web3 is a business. It, it, it's another collective. It's another mm-hmm. place for communities to get to and engage in a way that may well be different than other places. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's monetizable in terms of how we look to monetize 
literally everything in in our society is it it it, it, do, it never goes to where's the communication where's the conversation where's the value proposition it goes to where's the money and yeah. and and i think we 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 skip sometimes on the metaverse and web three as to okay it's going to be the next and nfts it's going to be the next big thing monetarily when it may just well be a collectible and it may be like 95 percent of all the baseball cards are valueless because i've got two garages full of valueless baseball cards um that, that my can my kids are still breaking packs um but you think about the functionality of NFTs, um, and, and I agree with you 100%. Well, two things. One, the vast majority of, of Web3 and blockchain and play-to-earn games are crap. They're not fun. They're just bad games, including the most profitable ones. They're just generally bad games. Axie Infinity, if you look at its economy and what's happening, not a good game is is a good proof of concept, but not, not good in terms of mass market enjoyable. Uh, but then more largely, if you think about NFTs, right? If it becomes essentially a digital receipt, which is what I, I would equate it to, we have a bunch of physical receipts now and they have practically no value. <laughs> so if you think about it, right, right now it's somewhat supply and demand and, and somewhat empty hype, but as it scales, if everything has an NFT in the future, and I imagine most things will, like, you know, this mouse will have an NFT attached to it and, and this, discarded container of yogurt that I had from last week that I should have thrown away, right? We'll have an NFT attached to it. And they won't mean anything. <laughs> well, you know, the interesting so, thing, and I know I know people yeah. that are that are in the NFT business on an early stage and they have relationships with God knows who. Yeah. Uh, lots of well known people with and they go, Oh, we're gonna do their NFTs. And I think what people don't realize is that the single largest asset that you can have is intellectual property. Right. If you own the IP, you have an asset that you can, and that's true, whether that IP is a, a song and you can see all the artists now that are selling all their libraries for hundreds of millions of dollars because they're selling masters. It's the IP. In NFT, you don't get the underlying IP. You, you are buying the digital code to an image of which you don't own that image. And when you talk to people, they go, no, 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 I have the I, IP. Oh, no, you don't have the IP and and I always find it interesting and again it's that fear of missing out that FOMO let's monetize it is what are you actually buying and they go oh I didn't know that why would I want to buy that right and and I think it's interesting um, to me it almost seems like the uh, uh, the pyramids games from you know first person in makes a lot of money because they can flip it and the last person that comes in um, they, they set their meeting and there's three people in there and they lost all, all their money so um, I, I agree with that. I think to answer your question about like the value of metaverse to esports is that it does give teams the opportunity to create their own IP as an experience, right? Where they can't create their own game. And that's not to say that teams haven't tried to create their own game. Uh, you know, you've got 100 Thieves announcing they're going to do that. I don't, they could be successful. History would indicate that they won't be. Um, because they raised $60 million last year and already had spent some of that. And some of the most successful games take at least $100 million to make if you want to compete at a scale of a Call of Duty, right? Or what was it? Um, Grand Theft Auto, I think, took half a billion dollars to make. So they didn't have the full $60 million when they made the announcement. And if they had the full $60 million, they still would, most likely wouldn't have enough money to produce the game. 
Then you add to it, you've got uh, Face Clan. Face Clan tried to make a game five years ago, and then they basically got called out and, and accused of, of intentionally scamming their audience because they didn't understand that they don't know how to make games. Right. It's really, really complicated and difficult to make a good game. No Companies that make games for a living can't do it consistently. No right? Right. Right. So, yeah, it's interesting. I think the team should be may, maybe focused on creating experiences. I think it took them 10 years to make that game. Yep. And, and it, right. Yeah. And, and I think. So I, I agree with you. You're, I, you're I, right. I think what it creates is an opportunity to create some kind of virtual IP and then monetize that community from that perspective where they couldn't do it from purely making a game because the development cycles are shorter and, the you know, you've got a lower budget to produce relatives to a game. But other than that, I think they will struggle. Be, before we sign off, and I can talk to you for like hours and hours and hours, and next time I come to Tampa, we'll do that over um, dinner, is I love your book, Innovate. Tell me, where were you when it popped in your head and you go, and I, I got to interview, I got to do this. So tell tell me where that it imp is, because I, I love the, that initial thought that people have. And I think uh, there are two things I want to say. One, I love the thought. And, and the concept behind the book, but even more so the fact that you actually went out and did it, right? Because it's all about execution. So there are a lot of people, 36 and otherwise, and 58 and otherwise, and 20, they go, I'm going to write a book. And it's mm-hmm. interesting. And all their friends and family go, yeah, it's a great idea. And then they never did it. So congratulations, not only for, for, the, for the thought, but um, for actually executing and putting it out and having it uh, so well received. Where did it come from? It wasn't my idea. Um, and to clarify, I only wrote two pages out of the book. It's, it's more of an almanac of innovation, an encyclopedia of innovation. Right. So I, I wanted to highlight the top innovators and thought leaders in the space. And, and A, I would never be able to tell their stories better than they could themselves. And B, you know, I, until six months ago, I had been working a full-time job in nothing related to gaming and esports in the metaverse of blockchain. So I just didn't have the time. Like part time, it took me two years to put together a book where I only wrote two pages. And in fact, I only wrote those two pages like the week before we printed the book because I just didn't even have time to write the two pages, right? So I never would have written the entire book myself. Right, but but even before <laughs> those two pages, just to uh, aggregate the innovators, mm-hmm. there, there, there had to be a moment where you said, there's a lot of innovators out there. Their stories need to be told. They're not told. And they're probably better told in a condensed version among many, you know, mm-hmm. like like a tabletop book of art, right? You're not going to yeah. have one book on the Mona Lisa. It, it's better to have multiple images that you can talk about. So where was that? And, and what was it about innovation and the innovators that, that you said, I want to talk to them mm-hmm. and I want to distribute their stories so to answer your first question i'll get back to this one yep. uh, so i this book is called innovate gaming and esports get the glare out of there and it's published by global villages you'll see the name on the spine yep. get out of the camera here so yep. i was actually in their book for tampa three years ago it used to be called best of tampa or best of was a series and they rebranded to innovate and in their second edition for tampa it went from best of tampa to innovate tampa and my previous company, the Multimedia Search Engine for Discovering Amazing Games, was featured in their second book. So in that process of them featuring me and including me in the book, they got to learn about the gaming industry because I put that context in that story, in my two-page feature in that book. So they came to me uh, before the pandemic and said, you know, 
we really think there's an opportunity to do a book about industries. That's where we're going. We're going to continue to do cities, but we also want to do industries. And we would love for you to lead an effort on gaming and esports. And then the pandemic hit and gaming and esports became like the only thing people were talking about as the only industry like not affected by the pandemic, right? Right. The industry increased in revenue. Yeah, it was actually bolstered by it. Down, right. Uh, and so they, they said, we really got to do this book. Can you do this book? And I told them, like, I don't have the time because I have a day job and I'm still building my startup and I've got two kids and I want to make sure I spend time with my wife. I just don't have time. They kept asking me, kept asking me. I said, all right, I'll do this, but I don't know how long it's going to take. And it took us two years. And to answer your second question, the reason I wanted to create the book was that I wanted to elevate the discourse, the conversation, the dialogue about video games and esports. There's still a stigma today. It was a, a, a strong stigma 20 years ago, but it still exists today. And people are just talking about, for example, in esports, about, uh, you know, Bugo. And I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this gamer tag properly. The kid won like $3 million playing Fortnite two years ago. Uh, and Ninja as a content creator. So nothing against like creating content <laughs> or winning a large seven figure sum as a prize for playing in tournaments. But A, those are exceptions to the rule. And B, those opportunities are dropped in the bucket to um, broadcasting and and sales and marketing and, and health and wellness, is, as you know, through what you're doing with skins.gg and all the other opportunities, 100 plus steam career opportunities in the space. So you could work either as an entrepreneur or an employee at another business that never get discussed because we're too busy talking about the $3 million one at the Fortnite tournament and, and FaZe Clan and, and Ninja. So I wanted to just elevate the conversation so that we can then have the, the second more important conversation of how do we integrate gaming and esports into our daily lives to, to reach our personal goals, whether that's as a student trying to, to understand what their career opportunities are, a parent trying to support their, their child's passion in a way that makes sense and creates actual opportunity, teachers trying to be more effective as educators, mm -hmm. right? Businesses who, who understand that like, Traditional advertising is is on the way to the, the waste bucket and digital advertising is becoming more and more competitive because of ad blocking and social media is becoming more and more crowded, needing a way to use a digital strategy that is effective and scalable, right? Uh, nonprofits trying to raise funds, uh, trying to improve like voter registration and, and volunteering and, and all these social good opportunities. Video games can help achieve all of that, but we can't even have that conversation so people understand what gaming and esports is. So that's why I created the book. And, and to answer the last piece of your question, ironically, when I started this book, I wanted to feature about 70% of the book on like the most popular people I knew in the space or I was connected to in the space. You know, I have a healthy LinkedIn network and I'm connected with the biggest teams, biggest companies, biggest names. And then 30% of people who were actually, I believe, were actual innovators. It's my opinion that like popularity and innovation are, are almost polar opposites. Like the most popular people are not the most innovative. Right. Right. And so I reached out to the 70% and the 30%, and almost without fail, the 70% either ghosted me, told me they didn't know what I was doing and didn't care, or agreed and then reneged on me. Mm. So what I had to do was to double down to, to, to go all in on the 30% who I felt were actual innovators and thought leaders. And as a result, my book is one of the most profound books and most inclusive books in 
the industry across the board. No question. Any sports. So is there one innovator that stands out more than anybody else? Not 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 to, to say that they're not all equal in the in the way that they innovate, but is there one that you when you were done and you say, Okay, you hit send to the publisher, you go I connect to that. I get it. I, I I'm I'm impressed. I love it. Is there that one innovator in there that stands out? Uh, from a, I'll, I'll give you two options or two two examples. One from the thought leader perspective because the first part of the book is thought leaders, and the, the remaining eighty percent of the book is innovators. The thought leader is Trinidad Armida. She used to work as the director of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion at Niantic, who makes Pokemon Go and several other games, right? And then she left to start her own business. And she works with now the biggest games companies in the space, you know, Unity and Unreal, you know, hopefully that's public on our website, but she works with some of the biggest gaming companies in the space. Um, and she wrote this piece about why it is important for historically excluded communities of the gaming esports tech industry to encourage their kids to A, play video games and learn about tech, but B, take the risk to be a part of these uh, frontier companies. You know, you think back 20 years ago with the, the dot-com boom and bust, we had trillion dollar companies that were birthed in that boom and bust, like Amazon and Netflix and Facebook. But at the time, they were risky endeavors. And because historically excluded uh, communities are also typically economically disadvantaged, those parents want safety for their kids, security for their kids. So they will advocate and advise them to go the safe route. Right. Not go do something that's risky. They're only speaking from their lived experience. And as a result, uh, if you include the other systemic issues around racism and sexism in the country and in the world, it dissuades historically, generationally dissuades historically disadvantaged groups from taking advantage of opportunities of being either founders in their own companies or getting equity in companies that then go on to exit, become billion trillion dollar companies, which then prevents wealth from being distributed back into the communities that need the wealth, especially if you have uh, ecosystems where those those same communities are being like appropriated, for example, Face Clan made its rise to fame off of basically appropriating urban culture from from the F or however they do it, like the gang sign F yeah. to the rap music to the way they, they they wear you know all their clothes, like all of that is is urban black culture. Yeah. But no one who works at an executive level uh, is from the black community. So when they if they do whatever valuation they do when they go public. That money will not go back into the black community that made its money off the black community. I'll say very bluntly there. So that's why that particular piece is important. She addresses the importance across the space for parents encouraging their kids to play games and then take that risk. Um, one of the ones I'm most excited from from a company perspective is uh, Joshua Nelson. He has a company called Emotional Ideas. He has a series of global patents on basically creating real life Mario Kart. Not like simulation racing, which is cool, but like embedding a gaming controller in an electric go-kart that could go up to 100 miles an hour so that you could literally have like racing where you can shoot lasers and have to dodge bombs and your speed is impacted by your strategy of you as an individual and your team. Fundamentally redefining motorsports globally. That's cool. That's cool. So those are the two, the, the, the Very uh, impressive. thought leader and the innovative company. Very impressive. Sorry, I was long-winded there, but I got on a soapbox. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. I, I, I've got some thoughts of um, the beginning of next season of the podcast. I, I want to do a series of, of conversations with clergy and members of the gaming about morality and gaming and who sets the standards. 
who enforces them and what are the consequences uh, for violating that and how does that play in a metaverse and things. I think there's some really interesting conversations that you would, uh, I'm going to bring you back for that because I think um, you, you, you've got, so the last thing um, that, that I'm going to ask you uh, before we go and I've taken up way too much time of your time is, do you have any time to game anymore? <laughs> the last time I gamed was about 90 minutes ago and only because I was doing an interview in Decentraland, which is a metaverse, which is basically a video game. Uh, and I was saying to, and I'll have to introduce you to Bubba, who's the executive director of the Varsity Esports Foundation, who's coincidentally also featured in my book. Okay. Um, that, And I, I said this when I spoke virtually in New Zealand two weeks ago, they had a summit around health, education, and gaming in the intersection that, you know, I knew from the fifth grade that I wanted to work in the video game industry as a full lifetime career because of my the impact video games had on me as a six-year-old. And I didn't know how to get there, but I knew it was like a life goal for me. And ironically, because I'm trying to create that opportunity at scale, for especially for historically excluded demographics, I rarely have time to play video games myself because I also, you know, I have to take care of my family, right. um, running my own business and, you know, the book, you know, I just, there wasn't enough hours in the day. So I think excluding this two hours ago, I don't think I've played a video game in at least, I would say something close to 90 days, between 30 and 60, maybe 90 days, like sat down and really played, played. All right, so we're going to end this so that you have an opportunity to go play. Uh, (laughs) That's your direction. As soon as we say goodbye, you go play. You're going to come back. We'll talk about uh, some more in-depth conversations in in a few months. Uh, Marcus Esports, Howard, thank you for your time, your insight, and everything that you're doing for the industry, and keep it up. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. uh, And thank you for the work that you're doing in the space as well. It's important. All right. Thanks, dude. We'll talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, dude. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the MAP Esports Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Please be sure to leave us a review and follow us on your favorite podcast player.